Well, good morning. You have navigated the weather and the challenge, and here we are this day to worship the living God. The call to worship for this morning is from Psalm 95, and we'll read it responsively. So let me begin, and you respond as we enter in to the glory and presence of the living God. It begins this way, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us stand and sing together, God of grace and God of glory. Amen. And have a seat if you would. Well, at this part, I'm always glad to say greetings and welcome, first of all, to those of you on site who've uh, made the trek through the freezing rain it was this morning, uh, but also to those online, whether through live stream or recorded later. Uh, we get to worship and then join you in that way. And I'm thankful for the reality of the person and work of the Holy Spirit for whom place and time is no limit, who joins and makes that possible. Now, another little welcome that I won't be able to give personally, I don't think, but on Friday, I hope uh, JB's in-laws, my coworker and colleague and friend, JB Wernland, his mother and father-in-law, Yvonne's parents, flew into Michigan from Southern California. We need to welcome them warmly. <laughs> They're going through shock today. A um, couple of quick announcements as we navigate uh, the day. First of all, uh, we have on tap a fellowship time in the library at the close of the service, some time together. I have still kept on hold for the holiday break from our follow-up that I usually do a question and answer interactive thing. So after the class, 
still don't feel like I'm ready to get that going this week. It's been a kind of hectic month. We've seen God present and working, but boy, it's been a challenging time. So I hope for your prayers, certainly for my prayers, we've found grace in the midst of that. Um, We are beginning to I get some new groups meeting, and I want folks to be aware of that. Tomorrow morning, uh, Lord willing and weather not a problem, I will meet for breakfast with a gathering of men. We're starting a new book, and I have copies of that. Uh, We'll read uh, about a 10 or 15 page chapter before each meeting, and then just kind of, what did you underline as we talk through this? A great book by Paul David Tripp, uh, Do You Believe? On Wednesday night, we're starting uh, a book series and want to see how many folks will respond, this discussion group on scandalous stories. It'll go with the sermons that we'll be preaching in all three communities. So we'll take the text and we'll sit down and with this book, Scandalous Stories, kind of talk and process through that. We'll make sure we've got a good small group setting. And then I'm also interested, all three of us are interested in continuing to start discussion groups using this material, Grace and Truth 1.0, five conversations every thoughtful Christian should have about faith, sexuality, and gender as we begin to pray and study and ponder just how do we live in this rapidly changing world. That's a five-session meeting. And I'm glad to do that. I've told Celebration this. I'll tell anybody this. Any place I can find eight people that would like to study that book, I'll arrange my schedule and get there for five weeks. How's that? So I want to empower you to be a part of digging in for some of these things. Um, I'm thankful that as I face this new and challenging time that we're living in, and you'll hear us talk about that through the upcoming weeks in the the sermons, that as we uh, do this, we come with a faith that has been given to us. I don't need to refigure out what I believe day by day, week by week, year by year. The faith has been once and for all handed down to the believers, is what the book of Jude says. And our challenge is to say, okay, given that faith that has been given to us, how then shall we live? Do you see the difference in that? And so there are times that someone will say, well, I believe this. And I'll say, well, that's marvelous. That's fine. But that's different than was handed down. So I want to go back to the gospel and what that means and then figure out how do we live that out in our day and time. A great way to do that is to just go back 500 years <laughs> to the Heidelberg Catechism. These were faithful people reflecting on that faith once and for all handed down, but living out in their time in a way that helps us live out in ours. So for the next month, we'll be looking at Heidelberg Catechism question two. Think we would have just confessed in the catechism what our only uh, hope is in life and in death. And this is the question that follows that. So if we can jump to Heidelberg Catechism question two. There's nothing there. Boy, well, I missed that, so let me do it myself and I'll let you listen. How's that? I'm not about to miss. Plus, you got that extra exposition on the value of creeds and confessions. Okay. The question is this, what must you know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort that I'm not my own but belong to Jesus Christ? And they wrote three things, three things. First, how great my sin and misery is. If you don't know that, you won't be able to live in the joy and comfort. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. So the problem, the answer. And then third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. The problem, the answer, entrance for living that out. So we'll be touching this each week because I'll get this caught up during the week. Let us sing together, Seek ye first the kingdom of God.
Good morning, Celebration family. It is so good to be worshiping with you here today and such an honor to be asked by Bill to, to come and share the prayer. And so, um, yeah, we have a lot to pray about, don't we? We do. It's been, like Bill said, it's been a challenging time. And, uh, but we find our hope and strength in knowing that we can go to Christ at any given time, any given moment. And he's ready and he's waiting to listen to us. So with that, let's bow our heads and pray, please. Lord, what a privilege truly it is to come to you today, knowing that the sweetest time of the day is when we pray, because we are talking to the one who loves us the very most. In our prayers and thanksgiving, we embrace that you, God, are our compassionate and you are a loving Father, and you are expectantly waiting to hear from your children as we come with hearts filled with gratitude, as well as whatever is weighing on our hearts, and there's a lot there. <clears throat> we begin with the promises found in Psalm 5 where it says, in the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice, and in the morning I lay my request before you, and I wait in expectation. And in the evening, in peace, I will lie down and I will sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Father, just as we celebrated your son this past Christmas time, may we continue to live in him and be rooted deeply in him, built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as we are taught, as Bill said too, as we are taught, as we are given and overflowing with thankfulness. May our words and our actions and our thoughts be full of praise as we consider the tremendous gift that is Jesus, who came into our world to save us from our sins. And the greatest gift yet to come, this hope that we have, this inheritance that awaits us, your faithful servants, when we cross the stormy waters of this world and we enter our peaceful dwelling that is heaven. As our God of harmony, we pray for a heavenly calm to fill our weary hearts, especially in these challenging times. May your gracious and your patient love unite us all. Our immediate family, our Hardawike family, our celebration family in particular, our neighborhood and our schools, our city, our state, our country, and our world. May we be vessels of your peace of hope, quiet our spirits, that we may be your light shining in the darkness. And we confess that we have a lot of light shining to do. We pray for those within our celebration community who are weighed down with care and concern and grief. We continue to pray for John as he grieves the passing of his precious wife, Beth, following the nine-month battle with cancer. We give you thanks for her life's testimony, one which reflected goodness and the love for her Savior. We also lift up Jane and Lee as they mourn the passing of their son-in-law, Adam, as well, who died on December 29, following the battle with ALS. We earnestly pray for Brianna as she remains in critical yet stable condition at Mercy Hospital, battling COVID. Lord, Hold her so tightly and hold her parents and the rest of her family as they are not permitted to be by her side at this time. May our relentless prayers of intercession result in a quiet reassurance and the ultimate healing for Brianna. We continue to pray for those that are battling cancer. We think of Helene Van Campen who awaits um, her results from this week's biopsy. We pray for Jim as he begins a new round of chemo. And we pray for Sean and our fusion community, who too is in the midst of treatments. Lord, for all of these families, we know that their faith is secure. And we give you thanks for the strength of family and friends that surround them at this time. Lord, we pray that you heal our land, arrest our fear, strengthen our faith. And through it all, as we carry each other through these troubled waters, let us remember that we are never more like you than when we pray and care for others. 
We give you thanks for pastors Bill and Aaron that they were able to have some time away to renew and refresh as they spent precious time with family. We pray for them as well as JB and Darwin, and we give you thanks for their ongoing servant leadership, not only sharing the truth of the gospel, but loving and caring for each one of us day in and day out. As we embark on yet another year, we are filled with gratitude for the ongoing support from those who call Hardawike their home of community and worship. We acknowledge we simply cannot do what we do in your name, Jesus, without the countless volunteers and the continued financial support. Thank you. And now, for the next few moments, with all that is going on in our world, whatever is looking to distract us at this time, may we set it aside. In its stead, your, may your words of promise and your words of truth fill us with peace and hope and even some challenges. Enter, as we enter this season, of even in a season of restlessness, lead us away from fear and discouragement, embracing that in you, Christ alone, is our hope, our rock, our anchor, and our peace. As we declared years ago, decades ago, centuries ago, it still holds true today and the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen, amen. Thank you, Mary. You know, one of the things that I really love about the ministry that I get to do here at Hardawike, and it's really one of the things that, that kind of lit my excitement to relocate here, um, was the idea of doing ministry together as a team, collaboratively. Uh, Mary was on staff when I first got here, and I've always appreciated that ministry. She's now ministering with Royal Park, and you are busy as a, what was that title, G Grandma? So she's doing all kind of good things, but you know, once we got you, we never let you go. So I appreciate your prayer and the life that we share together. And again, this idea that the grace-gifted body of Christ doing ministry together as the vision, I saw at work Thursday at the funeral for Beth Bowes. All the folks that it took to make that happen, all the things that go on behind the scenes, I'm deeply appreciative of those and very aware that I have a moment where I do what I'm called to do, and I'm going to give you the best I got. But I am thankful beyond words for the body of Christ that I get to equip and encourage and serve in this particular position. I'm excited about the new year and what God is going to do. It's not because I have any sense of calm or peace about what's going to go on in the world outside our walls, but it is about the power of the gospel that renews us here and then sends us out. We're starting a new sermon series today. We're going to do eight weeks uh, looking at particular parables of Jesus. This was a key way that he taught in his day and time. But Part of what we're struggling with, and you'll see this in the title, Scandal of Grace, we hear these so often that we tend to kind of, oh, we just pull their teeth and make them kind of calm little stories. We need to continue to see and hear the shock of grace that these often are. So I'm going to read this morning. We're looking at Jesus as he interacts with a Pharisee and a woman who lived a sinful life. It's not clearly described what uh, that was, but I'll read to you from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Let us hear the word of God. Now, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. Now, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, Oy vey, if this man were a prophet, ah! He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. 
Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, a little aside here. Whenever the Holy Spirit, as the voice of Jesus in our time, stops you and says, Bill, I have something to tell you. Hang on. Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, well, tell me, teacher, said Simon. There were two people who owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss of greeting, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God and Father, we thank you that God the Son lay aside his glory and walked among us and was invited to a dinner party and showed up. God at a dinner party in human form. And he encountered this Pharisee and this woman and he told this little story. People asked, who is this who forgives sins? Well, we see in the rest of the story that it was God himself who forgives sins by going to the cross and giving his life for us. I pray you would awaken us to the extraordinary marvel of this, that you would rock our lives and that you would let us see grace in such a new way that our hearts can do nothing but worship you in reckless abandon. Thank you for your kindness to us and for your great love. Thank you that you've uh, moved on Luke, the missionary physician, to record this story after he checked it out with eyewitnesses. The marvelous way you've preserved this text across centuries now. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you complete the promise of God by illuminating our hearts and minds to receive. Thank you that your grace is bigger even than my sin and brokenness. Guard your people from me, but by your grace, speak through me that they might see you in fresh and big and new ways. We give you praise and thanks and pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Well, this is a tale of two debtors. Jesus interacts with two people. And in the midst of this, he tells them a little story, a parable. So it's good we take a moment and think about perils, parables. Um, this book will be a good guide to that as we look at these particular ones, as we think about how grace functions in parables specifically. I find many times as I interact with people, particularly those who've been going to church for years, you know, we get kind of uh, accustomed and uh, make these toothless little stories, frankly. We think of parables. Um, in a time of overview, there we go, as a short story that teaches a moral or spiritual lesson. And so we listen to what Jesus says and ask, what should I do? This, by the way, is the definition in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. So if you look up parable, it says this, a, a story with a moral or maybe a spiritual truth. I know the one I grew up on was the little engine that could. Are you familiar with that? I think I can. I think I can. And I remember playing football, and I remember seeing large people, 50 pounds heavier than me, four inches taller than me, coming at me. And through the back of my mind, I think I can, I think I can. Well, that didn't end so well, but that was the 
parable, the fable, the story that I kind of grew up on. And our world is filled with them, and they can be helpful. They have their place. Aesop's fables, childhood stories that go back to ancient Greece, 600 BC, with a wisdom for living. Great uh, parable teller of our own day is Dr. Seuss. Do you remember Horton Hears a Who? A person's a person, no matter how small. Those are inspiring and kind. They're nuggets of wisdom for living. But I want to tell you, the Scripture is not that. The parables of Jesus are not little morality tales to help you live wisely. They're not inspiring instruction on what you should do in order to live safely and productively. Parables, when they're taught by Jesus, are a short story that provoke the imagination and the thinking and the pondering. And they provoke it about Jesus and his kingdom. And so one of the things you need to be asking as we read through these parables is what do I learn about Jesus? Not a person's a person no matter how small, but what does this tell me about Jesus and his kingdom? What have I believed about it once, but now Jesus wants to expand it? There's a number of helpful resources for that, and I'll just move through these quickly. One is going to be this book. The other, um, if you're more the video visual learner, you'll find on our sermon resources blog today from an organization called The Bible Project that I love. They do these brief teaching videos, and they have five minutes of video, how to read the parables. Click on that link, watch that, do it one time a day. You know, we learn by repetition, we learn visually auditorially, begin to get this sense that these parables are given to us to teach us about the king and his kingdom and what it means to live in light of that. These are important resources if we're going to let the grace that is at the heart of the gospel shape our lives rather than just a little more moral inspiration. So this morning we look at a parable about two debtors. Jesus goes to this dinner. It's hosted by a Pharisee, a prominent person, maybe a ruler in the synagogue. He's there, has been invited to this dinner to meet people, and an unexpected woman living a sinful life shows up. Now, I want to point something out to you. In this passage in particular, we really don't have a clear sense of what her sin was. Now, it looks kind of like a typical euphemism for sexual promiscuity. Multiple partners, adultery, even commercial sex, pornography or prostitution. It looks like it's that kind of euphemism, but it's one of these marvelous divine ambiguities. I talked about those when we were in the Psalms where let not your heart be troubled. You'll read something in the Psalms and you're not sure exactly what it is. But there's this space with which the things that trouble my heart on Monday fit, and the things that trouble my heart on Tuesday fit, and the things that trouble my heart on Wednesday fit. I want to suggest to you that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, left a divine ambiguity. May well have been that her sin was sexual in nature. It may well have been that it was something really wicked like gossip or unforgiveness or stinginess. It may include those sins that we grow comfortable with. So that's where I want to push you. There's a divine ambiguity here that invites us to think that her life is a message for us in what Jesus has to say about his kingdom. She lived a sinful life. We're not sure exactly what that is. But she's a character placed in opposition to this other character, the Pharisee. And here's something similar about the two of them. Each of them has an interest in Jesus. That's how they intersect here. The Pharisee, he's anxious to kind of evaluate this new rabbi on the scene. What is his teaching about? What is his life about? Now, we're enforced in this because you look at the whole chapter of... um, Luke, the seventh chapter, the running question through every incident has been, who is this guy, Jesus? The Roman centurion asks, 
Just before this, John the Baptist asked, remember John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, oh, the Holy Spirit has come down on him like a dove, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, a few months, years later, John is in prison. This Messiah thing doesn't seem to be working out like I expected. And he's asking, are you the one? I want to suggest to you folks, if John the Baptist can face the challenges of life and wonder, is God really at work? We can too. I never fear the question. I just won't accept a cheap answer. Does that make sense to you? It's worth asking a question, where better to go with your concerns and doubts and worries than to the people of God who can weep with you and stand with you and remind you of truth? So John the Baptist has just tried to figure out who Jesus is, and now there's this dinner party. And two people, a Pharisee and a woman who lived a sinful life, want to meet Jesus. Each has an interest in Jesus. One wants to consider and evaluate him. The Pharisee wants to test the waters and see what sort of man this is. He's coming for discernment would be the Bible word, but judgment is the heart word. The woman, she has decided. She's ready to dive in head first. She breaks out in worship without concern for what the world is thinking. So there's two people. Each has an interest in Jesus, but their interest is different. And so each has a different response to Jesus. As it turns out, the Pharisee will pass judgment, find Jesus wanting, and reject him. He can't be a prophet. Now, again, going through Bill's mind is, you're right. He's not simply a prophet. Jesus is a prophet, but he's so much more. People who want to say that Jesus is only a prophet have to reduce him to that. See how that is? The Pharisee says, oh, he's not even a prophet. Because if he were a prophet, he'd know who that woman is. And like me, he would not be hospitable towards her. Now, the Pharisee has a number of false thinking issues there. Jesus was a prophet. He knew what this woman was, but he would reach out to her. That's how the prophet under the anointing of God will act, recognizing sin, but offering the gospel. Yes, here this Pharisee wants to reject Jesus. He has his response, but the woman, she is all in. That's worth pondering. What kind of heart expresses itself in these two different ways. How can we look at their behaviors, particularly seeing them reflections of our own behaviors, and then ask what kind of heart gets you to that point? What sort of state of the heart leads to the particular expression? Pharisee, woman of a sinful life. See, again, the Bible is not nearly so much about what's your list of behaviors as it is, what's the state of your heart that leads to particular behaviors? As I did that, I began to see in the Pharisee a man who would say, I prefer myself above Jesus. I'm the one who can evaluate. It's up to me. This Jesus guy, he's not even a good prophet by my standards. You are not offering Jesus anything that I really need or I couldn't do on my own. What kind of heart would lead to the kind of judgment that the Pharisee has. Isn't it better that I live up to what is expected than just receive from others? To receive or be dependent, that's not a good thing. I'm uncomfortable with that. What kind of heart will look past Jesus and reject him? I find it easier to help others than receive help myself. Why is that? Why is that? Ask yourself those hard questions. I see those sorts of things uh, in the heart of the Pharisee. And when I look at this woman, I see her as a person who would prefer Jesus above the self. Look at her. She is not concerned about social convention. She's bursting into this wedding party or this dinner party, probably not invited, probably not accepted in this part of the community. 
And there she is letting her hair down, pouring out her most valuable uh, financial asset, this perfumed oil, kissing Jesus' feet. She is not concerned about the expected behaviors, what other people think of her. The words of the gospel have somehow gripped her and mean more to her than the words of other people and the Pharisees. Because you've got to think, do you think the Pharisee was looking at her and saying, you know, that's a really nice woman. She could join our church. And I'm not guessing he wanted anything to do with her. You can imagine what's going through his heart and mind, given what went through his heart and mind and showed itself with regard to Jesus. Friends, she was giving to Jesus worship, adoration, surrender, attention, unabated. She was the focus. He was more important to her than her comfort level, her sense of self, anything. Tell me about Jesus. Jesus, I want to be close to you. This unrestrained focus on and appreciation of Jesus, she didn't look to the disruption of the dinner party. And I would say to us, don't do that either. Don't look at the way she disrupted the dinner party or that social upheaval. Instead, look at the woman's heart. What was it about the motivations, the experience, the knowledge that enabled her to behave in this manner of total commitment to Jesus? And I want to say to you, she preferred Jesus to her own sense of sentimentality, comfort, whatever. I want to make clear as well, because the text is very clear about this. I won't get into the tenses of the verbs and the things, but they're very clear that she was first forgiven and then she loved. It's not that she loved Jesus and then was forgiven. That would be backwards. Verse 42 makes very clear that unable to repay, forgiven the debt, express the love. What I think in a, in a grace-centered way the Scripture often invites us to do is to ask, look at your behaviors, ask what sort of heart they come from, and then ask, is that heart in line with the gospel? And, and that's not to then manipulate people by shame, but it's to encourage you to see wherever the motivations of my heart leading to whatever behavior are different than the promise of the gospel, God has fresh new work to do in me. I'm at a state in my life now where every time I see where my heart isn't consistent with the gospel of God's grace, I'm going, oh boy, this may be tough, but he's going to do a good work in me. The gap is nothing I hide from. It's something I take to the cross. And God, by his mercy and grace, begins to bring that together. It's interesting. We have a parable about two debtors. Jesus speaks into this situation, this brief two verses of story. Two debtors owe a certain money lender a certain amount of money, different amounts. Neither can repay. Both are forgiven. Now, it's very fascinating to me when I read that parable and I think this is probably common. I see different debts. Oh, 1,500, 150. And I see different responses of love. We see the difference. But I think I want to invite you to a, a different perspective than the world would have on this. I think Jesus is pointing to their similarity. Neither could pay back their debt. Luke 7, 42. Ponder that whether 500 or 50 can't pay it back, they're debtors. They still face the same problem, the same judgment. Tim Keller, in a 1992 sermon on this very text, has a fascinating illustration. I often tell, yeah, I, I try to give reference when I borrow material from some, someone, I'm doing this from Tim Keller, but just typically, if I ever say something insightful or inspiring, it's probably from Tim Keller and I just forgot. Keller looks at this moment, they're both debtors and unable to repay their debt. And he said, it's kind of like being dead. If you have two people and one is given a drop of poison and suddenly drops dead painlessly and quickly. And the other one, someone bursts in with a submachine gun, shoots them up, then hacks them up with a sword, and then sets them on fire. Which one is more dead? They're both dead. 
Now, if I were to ask which way would you rather die, we'd all go the easy way. But friends, dead is dead. Unable to pay your debt is unable to pay your debt. And the point of this parable that Jesus unwinds in this dinner party is that neither could pay their debt. One owed very little, one owed a lot, but neither could pay their debt. Jesus points to this similarity, and that becomes the key to seeing something important. The Pharisee has not faced the fact that he cannot repay. Let me go back to that. He has not faced the fact that he cannot repay his debt. This Pharisee thinks the woman is a bigger sinner than he is. When he hears the, the parable, I can picture him very easily thinking, hmm, you can't forgive, but I get your point. You think she's got a lot to be forgiven, and obviously I don't. Don't you just hear that in the heart and mind of the Pharisee? Obviously I don't. Friends, I want to tell you something. Jesus is speaking here to church-going folks. Well, synagogue-going folks, but kind of the same thing. One way churchgoers avoid conviction of sin and repentance is to minimize their sin and to maximize their good behavior. You see, if my sin isn't really bad sin like that woman, and my behavior is really good sin like all of you know, then conviction and repentance just isn't that important. This idea that the other person is the bigger sinner robs us of the grace of God. I found across the years of my own life that it's hard for me to extend forgiveness to someone that I think is a bigger sinner than I am. You know, I'm a, I, I'm a sinner. I mean, I'm an Orthodox Christian, so I believe this. But that person, they have done something that I would never do. Suddenly, I have trouble forgiving them. I have trouble extending forgiveness to somebody that I think is a bigger sinner. It's hard for me to extend that forgiveness to someone in that situation because bigger sinners should get what's coming to them. Bigger sinners need to get to work and be good, in parentheses, just like me. See how we're navigating this inner life, not just the behavior's life? The Pharisee and his world, his church, his family, his friends would all say he has less to be forgiven than the woman. But what does God say? Neither of them can repay. Is sexual promiscuity sin? Yes, and the woman was guilty. But is sexual promiscuity worse sin than pride or self-righteousness? Sin is sin and needs to be forgiven, not avoided. It's a fascinating dynamic here, too. In the Pharisees' time, sexual promiscuity would have been awful. Self-righteousness was just part of how we do. We've almost stood things on our head now. Oh, yeah, college student, hookup culture. Yeah, no problem. Everybody does that. But you self-righteous person. See how we've kind of taken the stood them on their head between these two times. But the point of Jesus is that both are sinners who cannot repay. Both need grace to be forgiven. The woman has faced the fact that she, um, cannot, that she cannot repay her debt. And so she receives God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus in this moment as something like good news. She realized she was a sinner who needed grace. The Pharisee was a sinner who did not realize his need. When you don't realize your need, you keep on doing what you think will work. It's not until you come to grips that I cannot repay my debt. Now, let me give you another insight to this particular thing. Luke is the, the writer of this gospel, and Luke was a, a doctor, trained physician, Greek, who traveled with the apostle Paul, a missionary doctor. Paul would preach. There would often be miracles. Luke would share the gospel and do his medical work. We see that recorded in Acts. Let me give you a quick timeline, and this is a refresher because I've done this in more depth, of Paul's life. The, the dates and the ages are approximate, but kind of work with me and watch how this rolls out. 
He's raised as a Pharisee, it says in Philippians 3. And at about the age of mm, 20, a strong Pharisee, just like the guy in this parable, Paul holds the coat of those who stone the deacon Stephen to death. Paul feels he understands enough about God's will that he can render life and death judgment. Like any good schooled Pharisee, he knows who's good and who's bad. He knows who deserves what. Well, a few years later, for let's say he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, that's Acts 9. Now we go a little further in history. Um, 22 years later, he's about 46 years old. And in 1 Corinthians, writing the book there, he refers to himself as the least of all apostles. So from a a 20-year-old who says, I can render life and death judgment as a Pharisee, to meeting Jesus, to years later, the least of the apostles. Five years after that, as he writes the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 3.8 says, I am the least of all God's people. Do you sense a direction here? Towards the end of his life, 53 years old, as best we can guess, one of his last books, 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, sinners of whom I am the worst. I was struck. Luke records this parable, but his missionary buddy, they've spent years together in ministry in all sorts of cultures. His friend Paul lives out the transition from that Pharisee to that woman. Paul, like that Pharisee, doesn't recognize his sin. Towards the end of his life, like the woman, he realizes the best thing he's ever been given is forgiveness that he could not earn or deserve. The two characters that Jesus has in front of him in this parable are stretched out across time, decades really, in the life of the Apostle Paul, from Pharisee to forgiven sinner. Friends, that is the gospel. I want to close by asking you to reflect on some things. If this woman we'd have to move in about 20 centuries, but if she were to show up at a celebration service, join us in worship, what we know and can see, what would she experience here? What I picture in my mind, having lived in New Orleans and been down to the French Quarter, is what we would call a streetwalker, and you can pick them out. If she were to show up and have a seat, would she be welcome? or those kind of people would not. Well, we see what Jesus did. What would she be told? Oh, you'd better change yourself to be accepted. Go home and put on some different clothes. Take off that lipstick. Or would she hear that her debt was paid because of what Jesus did at the cross? And would she be called and instructed to live out of that abundance? Would she hear the message that, woman, there's an appropriate place at the table of God for you, and it's right next to me. Come and sit down. You know, you don't have to dress like that in order to be loved. You are loved so you can cherish yourself and your presentation. Indeed, what you thought was love never was. God has a different identity for you. You know, often people show up at a church and the first thing we do is put them to work. Go down, take care of the nursery. How much better to say, come join me, let's go to the nursery. That she might see how caring for children out of the gospel of God's grace looks different than the family she might have grown up in. Do you begin to see how the way to welcome into ministry and life with the gospel looks so different? And I think it's important that we struggle with this, friends, because there will be people who show up. There may be people who are here who inside are crushed by feeling they don't make the grade. Will we instruct them in how to make the grade and tell them to get to work? 
or will we point them to the cross of Jesus who paid the grade, who made the grade and paid the price and say, begin to live out of that. We could ask as well, I've kind of picked on this woman, if you will, but we could ask, how would the Pharisee be received? After all, that Pharisee would be prominent and affirmed and, um, dare I say, wealthy, better tither. But would that Pharisee hear the hope of forgiveness for sinners who were well-behaved? It's fascinating, isn't it? Suddenly... I'm a little of both, but both need the forgiveness that only Jesus is in a place to give. Who is this who forgives sins, they asked. Oh, it's God the Son. He would lay aside his glory. He would go to the cross. He would be raised to new life. Whoa, that dude can deliver. See, I'm a little of both, but only one can give me what those need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the the scandal of grace in the gospel. That while my world might recognize my achievements and be appreciative of the abundance of my life, that you see my need. And you don't see my need in order to shame me or manipulate me but you show me my need, that's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit day by day, so that I might receive more and more of what you have to give. So I thank you for the excitement of a deeper sense of my brokenness because your answer to that is not more effort on my part, but more abundance of yours moving through me to your glory and for the benefit of others. Help us to see ourselves in these stories and not so much in what we should do with moral wisdom, but what you have done through the king of the universe who would give his life for people such as us. How we thank you. How we love you. This day, renew us again and send us into the world with good news. A God who loves us enough to rescue us in the midst of our confusion and brokenness, especially when we don't even recognize it. Fill us with great hope. Thank you for this moment, Jesus. We give you praise. And all of God's people said together, amen. Amen. I love the words of this hymn. This is a new one that I didn't learn until I came here, and so y'all have taught it to me. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. The woman could sing this loud and strong. I want to join her in this moment.
now receive the blessing of God's word, a benediction taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. And now may the grace of Christ, which daily renews us, and the love of God, which enables us to love all, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which unites us in one body, may that make us eager to obey the will of God until we meet again, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. Thank you.